This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Dr. Ira Bayak. He's a professor of medicine at Dartmouth and the former director of palliative medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire. I spoke with him on March 2, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. This interview is included in our show, Contemplating Mortality. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. <coughs> Dr. Bayek? He has oh. just arrived. Okay. We were going to wait to get his headphones on here okay. in a second. Okay. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you well. Hi. Yes. It's so good to finally have you at the other end of the microphone. Thanks. Is this Krista? Yes, it is. Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much for doing this. <laughs> oh, I, I have been sick all week, but I, I took Sudafed this morning, and I, I'm, but I'm going to draw energy from you. So, <laughs> Well, I've been really looking forward to doing this. I'm a, I'm a fan of your show, and, oh, and you do a great job, and um, you know, it's really an honor to be on and... You know, oh, well, so I'm, I'm yearning to have this conversation. Good, I it's um it's been really wonderful to to kind of steep myself in this, also to prepare. And I do I do want to say I think you know this, but I um I know you're doing. I know that there's real political advocacy that grows out of what you care about, and I don't want to I don't want to get into that too much. Um, uh-huh. I want to do yep. do more of the human stuff, and I, I think you also know that. Um, Absolutely. Uh, um, and we may we may we may wander in there a little bit later, but um, whatever you know, yeah. let's you know, yeah. uh, however it goes. Um, and your new book is coming out very soon. Is that right? Yes, <laughs> I'm in a phase that's probably as close to being pregnant as a guy can get. Yes, I mean well, I've been, this thing's been living within me and growing within me for a long time. Yeah, that's so how, it's really exciting. I think that I also felt that way about uh, publishing <laughs> that it's like giving birth, and then and then it is like well, in many ways, don't you think that first of all you forget that you forget the pain? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which was excruciating. Yep. <laughs> and and then the other the nice thing is that it lives beyond the moment, right? And then other people take it and it's you know, so cool. It has its own it's, life. It's it's so cool. Yeah. It, it really is. It's uh, it's you know it's great. And I, I I don't know if every author feels this way. I sort of assume so. Um, but um, but this is you know what I've wanted to put out in the world. This mm-hmm. is this is a labor of. Uh, uh, head and heart, mm-hmm. um, really, it, so deeply, and so to have it out there is so quenching. Yeah, yeah, it's just so wonderful. Yeah. I can. Um, it's usually fine. We're in a soundproof room, doors closed. Um, I can turn my mic and my headset down in a second. Maybe it's coming from there. Okay, well then, t- I think uh, this is going until 1 o'clock, is that right? Our time? Yeah, we'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll probably go about 75 minutes. But we, we probably won't use the whole 90 minutes, but we do, we do like to take it because we do a, sure. we do a real conversation and then we, 
we edit it down for the hour. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if if everything sounds good, I'll turn my stuff down and I'll probably actually step out. And then if there's any issues, since this is taped, you can come grab me. Does that sound good? Absolutely. I'm turning it down right now. Sorry, say that again. I didn't hear you. Okay, I don't actually know what that means. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> okay, thanks. Is is this the uh, Dartmouth campus radio station? Is it where you are? Um, it's actually it's not a radio station. We just have this oh. is public affairs office. Got we just it. Okay, use it for interviews once in a while. So okay. I, I'm not totally technically proficient. <laughs> but. Well, as long as it sounds good to Zach, then it's fine. I trust him. Okay, yeah. great. I do too. Thank you. Well, let's. Um, can we start, Zach? Do you think are we ready to start? Okay, great. So, um, I you know I want to start with you where I start with everyone. Um, and just, I've read a little bit about this, but I, I do want to probe a bit. Was there, um, was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? How do you, how do you think back on that? <laughs> well, I was raised in a Jewish household. Yeah. Uh, I but that was, means you know, many different things. <laughs> so my, my, uh, parents, uh, weren't, um, uh, religious in a, uh, uh, strict, um, sense of, of, of being, uh, synagogue goers or uh, praying at home, uh, being uh, uh, faithful to the traditions of Judaism or kosher, anything like that. Mm -hmm. We were more secular or uh, I like to say culinary Jews. You know, the the real Jewish experience from my upbringing was – had to do with – uh, chicken soup and you know kreplach and <laughs> and noodle kugel and yeah. you, all all of the wonderful knishes I could keep going. Yeah. Uh, to this day, I I get a rush of Judaism sitting in in front of a, a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but but we did learn. I learned, and I didn't even know this until years later, that this sense of community is embedded within uh, uh, Jewish spirituality. Mm-hmm. And boy, I got a big dose of that. It mattered to my parents uh, how other people felt, uh, their qualities of life. Um, you know, this was also the time when uh, the country was wrestling with civil rights and and equality issues, and uh, and and for some somehow for me that was all wrapped up. Um, you know, doing the right thing, right. being a mensch, was the highest value. <laughs> And so that that you know I I've become I think very culturally Jewish in in those ways. Right. And then if you think about the things that you care deeply about now that you've come to care deeply about, um, you know, end of life uh, and all the things that you associate with that, uh, do do you do you do you see origins or seeds of that in in the beginnings of your life? I do. Really, what I needed to know about caring well for people, I, I really didn't learn in medical school or, or my medical training nearly as much as I learned from, frankly, my parents mm. uh, in the care that um, we gave as a family to my grandmother after a, a really devastating stroke that she had. Uh, I probably was, you know, uh, uh, seven or eight, I think, at the time when, when uh, Grandma Nana had her sp- 
stroke. And and she was at Kessler's Institute in northern New Jersey for a while. She she really she couldn't speak. She couldn't move uh, her uh, left side. It was it was really quite devastating. Mm. Um, and and after Kessler's had done as much as they could do, um, and she was nowhere in any way able to to return uh, home with my grandfather. We, we took her in. We took her home. And we cared for her, uh, frankly, lovingly, uh, day in and day out. My mom shouldered most of the load, uh, but my father was deeply involved uh, and, and in, a, in such a, a tender and loving way. Uh, and for me, that really has stood as the epitome of what truly excellent care looks like. Hmm. You know, medicine has a big role to play, but but tenderness and love is really the sine qua non of, of excellence. Tenderness is a word that I really love, and it just doesn't get used very often. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful word. Well, it's alive and well in American medicine, mm-hmm. uh, all, despite every attempt of, uh, <laughs> of uh, medical science and, and technology and, frankly, sort of the, the technological culture of medicine to, to snuff it out. Mm. Uh, tenderness is alive and well. You, you see it day in and out, day in and day out, mostly from nurses. Yeah. You know, watching, watching a skillful nurse give a bed bath or, or just listen to a patient, mm. uh, you, you, you get a sense of where the, uh, the, the real heart of therapeutics is, is beating. You know, I think it surprised me a little bit. I'm not sure why when I was uh, looking at how your your trajectory of your life as a physician that you you spent a, a, a pretty good amount of time as an emergency physician. Is that right? Emergency? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yep. Loved it too, by the way. Did you? Oh, you bet. Yeah. And it, it, that's a, a very frenetically paced and life on the <laughs> edge and, I mean, about solving problems, which I guess uh, – I mean, but I wonder if out of that experience, this this direction you've gone, how did that shape this direction your, your medicine has taken? Well, you know, first, um, I took to emergency medicine because I, I, I want to save lives. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I think, again, back to my Jewish upbringing, this, uh, uh, this notion of life is, is really the prime directive. It is the, it is what there is. You know, if I have an agenda, you know, I've been accused sometimes of having a political agenda in my writings and, and speaking, but if I have an agenda, it's, it's about promoting life. Mm-hmm. And so even today, I love the idea of saving lives and, and celebrating uh, lives. Emergency medicine um, fit beautifully because, frankly, I'm sort of an adrenaline junkie as well. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, so that frenetic <laughs> pace that you uh, yeah. talked about, well, that's that, yep, that fits just fine. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. Uh, and, and really, um, you know, there's, there's nothing more exciting than being able to meet people at the most critical times of their lives right. and, and be of service. Right on the edge there, I guess. Yeah, we we uh, my career. If there's anything that's held it together, it's it's walking very close to the edge with other people. Mm-hmm. It seems to me when I read the way you, and listen to how you've spoken and written about y- your early life in medicine that you you kept having this experience that when people started to die and that was clear what was happening is where medical care kind of ended, that, that, that then these were experiences perceived to be failures, 
um, but also that you that you <laughs> that, that that left you wanting um, precisely as a physician. It's true. Uh, people in the medical profession have long tended to uh, walk away or turn their back, feeling, feeling, frankly, their own pain, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, clinicians really love patients. We really care about patients. That, and that's the unspoken truth because it seems too woo-woo or too sentimental to say out loud. But you can see it, and you can say it to one another, or you can see it in, in the looks or the pained faces of, of my fellow doctors and nurses, and and they re- recoil when someone we've been working so hard uh, to help live longer to to save their life is now dying. Uh, of course, it's the wrong thing to do, and and through my own development. Um, reasonably early on, but uh, it's still a work in progress. I I realize that um, I have to, you know, acknowledge that I want to walk away and and protect myself, but to turn toward it mm-hmm. and open your heart to it. I mean, I think the the central question for for clinicians in this in in this realm of of uh, clinical practice by which I mean emergency medicine, critical care, oncology, and certainly hospice and palliative medicine, the, the, the real central question is, is whether to uh, give in to fear uh, and, and close our, ourselves or to keep our hearts open uh, despite the uh, a cost it might uh, uh, ex- ex- extract on our uh, current comfort or, uh, and the emotional pain it might uh, cause us. I think that's such an interesting way to talk about it because it 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 is a fact of sorts that that medical care the 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 driving force of medical care is to save lives and that you know when when a life can't be saved then um, the, the that that there's a sense of failure and when you say it that way. It sounds heartless, in fact, but what you're saying is that it is because physicians have emotional investments in their work um, that that sense that that sense of failure is is, is something personal, and <clears throat> um, I, I just think that's a perspective. You know that you're saying that the work of also grappling with that and even moving beyond it is is science is emotional work as much as scientific work. It, to care well for people, one has to extend the sense of quality to all of life. Uh, that includes the, the uh, times of living with serious illness, mm-hmm. of uh, disabilities uh, uh, related to illness and pain, um, and all the impending losses that people feel, their pain, uh, their, the family in their caregiving and, and in their grief. Mm-hmm. To, to do it well, to really be of service to people as a Clinician, and, and I could say the same if I was a nurse or social worker or a chaplain or any, any of the clinical professions. You have to, you know, show up for all of it and, and really um, help people through these extraordinarily difficult but, frankly, normal times right. and experiences of human life. Right. right. That death, death, in fact, is a normal part of life. Right. Is this profound? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, well, you know, it's, it's countercultural. So, it's countercultural. You can look it up. I mean, we yeah. just don't, you know, yeah. we're mortal. And, yeah. and there it is. So it struck me in recent years that there seems to be this just this exponential increase in people 
who in their families, in their immediate lives, have gone through a hospice experience with, with someone. Um, and you even have things like Caring Bridge, this website where you know right. pe- people it's participate. Yeah, I mean those. Right. And and but I, I it also seems to me that um, that this has happened in a way pretty rapidly. Maybe it doesn't feel rapid to you, but but it's 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 become that has become normal too in recent years. But um, I know that when I, I I wonder if when you were starting out as a doctor, when you first started to puzzle over these things. You know, was was hospice even a word you knew? And I wonder if you would tell a little bit of the story as you experienced it of how this whole new approach to end of life kind of grew in your profession. So I, I started my internship uh, after graduating the University of Colorado Medical School, and I, I started an internship in, in family practice. I was going to be a rural family practitioner. And, and this was, this was uh, uh, in 1978, um, hospice uh, barely existed in this country. It had mm-hmm. started in the United Kingdom. Uh, Cicely the, Saunders. By and... Cicely Saunders, mm-hmm. you know, who, who was a nurse who hurt her back and became a social worker and, and all the time being very concerned how, how badly Britons were dying. And then uh, she uh, wanted to do something about it, was told to go read medicine, <laughs> and she became a doctor. <laughs> Which uh, there deep... means study medicine, right. Right, yeah. exactly. So, you know, here's this deeply spiritual woman, by the way, on the, you know, in, in addition to sort of creating the interdisciplinary team model of hospice care. She sort of became an interdisciplinary team unto herself mm. during mm. her career. Here I was in, in uh, Fresno, California in a ex- very excellent but boat gray county hospital trying to care well for people uh, who were uh, – many of whom were seriously ill, meeting them in the emergency department or the ICUs often and, and, uh, and helping to care. And we did a good job except we didn't do so well when people were dying. They would get lost in the system. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd be discharged home and the, and the home health nurses couldn't even find them. And, mm. and again, there, there was really uh, not much hospice going on in, in this country. There was a hospice program at a Catholic hospital across town uh, called St. Agnes Hospital. And, and uh, I remember the fellow, I, I, I'm pretty sure his name was Mr. Waters, um, who had a, a, a bowel cancer and he had, his abdomen had sort of um, a surgical wound had broken open and it was just terrible. He, he, he was comfortable enough, but, you know, we were packing and unpacking his soiled wounds uh, a couple of times a day, and and I was instructed to go discharge him home, mm, <laughs> and, mm. and I just I had a crisis of conscience. Mm. I couldn't do the discharge, yeah. and so I, I called up the hospice at Saint Ag, uh, Agnes, and and it was the first time anybody from from uh, this medical center, the county hospital, had tried to make a referral, mm. and they they took the referral, but they also came over and talked to me and, and wanted to know what, who I was and and mm. how how did this had happened. But, but hospice was a countercultural movement at the time, Krista. Yeah. It, you know, it was a social movement, often by nurses um, and others, a very few doctors, uh, in response to people dying badly, uh, often dying in pain, often in hospitals, too often alone. And it, it has grown up and, and now been incorporated back in, into the sort of the, the corpus of medicine. But its roots have been in a, as a countercultural response. And and we've made a big difference, though we're by no means done. Yeah. And it seems to me that what you 
that in a sense you, in your work and in your thinking, are wanting to add another layer to that. Because as you say, it's something that's still evolving. It's still growing up. Um, in, that um, not, not just that life prolongation is not the same as focusing on life, quality of life, but it seems to me that you are saying, you're taking the hospice idea a step farther and, and saying, let's not merely make the end of life as as pain-free and humane as an experience as possible, but treat dying as a time of value in human life, as a developmental stage. I, I think that is another kind of radical idea, countercultural idea, certainly. It is, it is at the moment, yes. And yet, from my perspective, it's so totally obvious and natural. I mean, you know, Maslow, Piaget, Erickson, they all talk about human development as being a lifelong process. Right, but it's you know? all about starting. It's it's all an upward. <laughs> well, it's not it's not merely upward, but it's much simpler and easier for us to think of human development in terms of childhood, adolescence, adulthood. Right. Accomplishment right. in midlife. You're taking it to you're you're working at the edges of that, at the end of that yeah. spectrum. But I'm not asserting anything as much as describing. Uh, it's almost an anthropological fact. Uh, you can you can read it in people's biographies. Uh, you know, at least some people, even e- even without the sort of assistance that I and, and and my colleagues can provide, some people do die well. Yeah. Uh, and and I mean that you know that phrase dying well. So often people hear that the word well as an adverb, sort of you know describing what, how how well or badly it happened. You know they died well. It was a good process. But I think the more interesting and accurate way to hear that word is as is as an adjective. Can someone be well as they die? Mm-hmm. That's really the the process of human development is to is to. Uh, maintain or regain a sense of wellness, of, of sense of integration as a person through each of the critical developmental crises of life. And, and that's, that's what happens when the toddler becomes a preschooler, when, you know, when, when the uh, young adult leaves home, um, when, when people get married, on and on. This developmental crisis, this notion that life is coming to an end, um, has lots of capacity for suffering, but there is obviously, just from an anthropologic perspective, obviously a capacity we have uh, to grow through this experience too. In, in the current contemporary world, we have so medicalized the end of life, right. and, and not for by ill intention, but by because of loving intention. We don't want the people we love to to die, and and we doctors don't want our patients to die, but inadvertently. We've so medicalized the experience that this notion of wellness seems uh, to some of my own colleagues and, you know, utterly antithetical. What are you talking about, Ira? <laughs> you know, somebody being well, and yet there it is. And I tr- I've tried through my writing to tell stories of real people who, who have told me they have a sense of wellness during the end of their lives. Something that it comes up a lot in my interviews and has come up again recently and, you know, comes up with people like Rachel Naomi Remen as well, who I'm sure you know, is yes. that, you know, making a distinction between healing and curing and that we tend to think of problems that need to be cured or as medicine as a field that is about curing. But 
part of wisdom, and this is true of physical disabilities or limitations as well as other kinds of limitations, is understanding healing as something that can happen without perfection. Certainly. And it seems to me you're kind of giving, you're kind of taking that to another, to, to what it looks like when you're talking about dying, dying well. I, I think it's, it incorporates this notion that that which is wounded are perhaps our relationships, um, most of which, you know, there's not been a perfect relationship in the history of the planet. Yeah. Uh, even the most close and loving relationships uh, often are, are, you know, have histories of hurt feelings or misunderstandings and sometimes real transgressions. Yeah. Uh, so healing is, is certainly a, a part of it, our healing within ourselves, with our relationships within ourselves and our, our, our you know, our own uh, um, experiences of failure or shame or embarrassment and, you know, not having lived up to our own expectations. I, I do think, though, that even that notion of healing ties us in some way to um, a, a pathologic framework. Hmm. That, that really human development, the sense of being able to grow, is, is larger still. It encompasses the healing. It encompasses the crises all of our our uh, doubts or you know our insecurities, but it, it allows us to um, achieve a sense of of fuller integration. Maybe as as the developmentalist Maslow would say, of self actualization. Mm -hmm. uh, that that I I really find uh, is is helpful. And and I would say one other thing that that human development actually allows us to talk across cultures in a way that even the language of healing um, doesn't. Um, you know, my Mexican-American patients when I was in, in uh, uh, California didn't understand this notion of healing. You know, you mean I wasn't well, doctor, before I got my cancer? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, this personal right. wounds or primal wounds. And yet this notion of growing and that growth is hard at times uh, does have – a, a, a sort of a cultural connotation or valence that's positive uh, across cultures. And you have coined a phrase, the, the four things that matter most. You've identified four statements, uh, states of being. Um, I don't know how would you say it, that, 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 uh, <laughs> I, I've just become the Johnny Appleseed of these things, by the way. I didn't invent yeah, them. Yeah, right. But they've been, in, they've been in our culture and certainly within uh, uh, hospice and palliative medicine practice. Uh, so many uh, clinicians have used these four things, okay. which, which are actually just 11 words, four sentences, yeah. 11 words. Three yeah. tiny sentences. <laughs> Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Those those four things, uh, I still use them in my clinical practice quite frequently. When people people often say, "I don't know, I don't know how to do this, Doctor Bayak. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to say to people." If you're really stuck <laughs> at any time, mm -hmm. um, those four things are a nice way to to start. Whether you use them verbatim, and I have had people use them verbatim, but but make them your own. But you know, there hasn't been a a perfect relationship. So saying, please forgive me for the times I screwed up and, you know, hurt your feelings or, miss, you know, um, uh, you know um, embarrassed myself. Uh, and I forgive you for the times that my own feelings got pinched. And, and I know, you know, I know that, uh, you, you know, you, 
you care well about me and and then thank you and I love you is often stating the obvious. And and your point also and the stories you tell uh, is that I mean this is it's being able to come to this place in oneself and with those one loves that is part of the really critical not just the work but the value um of that time of dying it's for many many people it is mm-hmm. you know the things that matter most aren't things at all they're other people that's and and we know that again just anthropologically you know that what matters most are other people look at look at the uh the oh the captain of the doomed uh, Russian um, submarine uh, talked. He wrote about love. I am writing blind, but he writes about love. The 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 miner uh, miner in the Sago mine, uh, the people in the towers who got on their cell phones and and called, or or in the plane uh, over Pennsylvania. The, you know, these are the things that they say. I love you. That's the short course, by the way, <laughs> in saying the four things. But you know, when I think about. Um, again, these are eleven words, but as you say, no relationship is perfect, and many relationships are troubled. <laughs> right? Many relationships, especially the relationships that we have with our families, and um, these sentences. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Um, in a lot of families, there's going to be real work involved in being able to say those words and mean them. Mm. They're not words. Mm-hmm. It, it almost, you know, when as I really looked at them and thought about them and, you know, even thought about my family, um, I, I wondered if, <clears throat> if there's something about being in that extreme moment of life, as you say, normal but ultimate that creates an opening for some people to do that work, to say those words, where it hasn't been possible in other points of the lifespan. Exactly. Exactly. It it shakes us free from our own stuff, the veneers, the layers of, of personality, of who we think we are, of protecting ourselves. Exactly. You know when the times uh, are that you can say those things most easily? Um, when you've just slammed on the brakes and just <laughs> narrowly missed getting killed and you're, you're shaking like a leaf and you are in a cold sweat and everything just almost ended. Yeah. Pick up your cell phone. I tell you, it becomes really easy to call your spouse or your, you know, your mother or father or your mm-hmm. child and just say those things. You know, it just shakes us us free. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've listened so often to wise people on on this show, frankly. I've been a fan for years. And, and so often I think of my own uh, day-to-day work. I'm just, you know, I really am just a doc. Um, but I, I think of the people I've met and, and this notion that uh, life-threatening illness or injury – um, in a sense, makes Buddhists of us all. <laughs> you know, I yes. mean, it really wakes Oops. us from this sort of illusion of immortality. Right, right. You know, from the moment we get that diagnosis, all of a sudden, oh my, has life changed. And it makes that 
ultimate significance of this moment really come Here and home. now. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and, and frankly, it throws in sharp contrast how important we are to one another, how much uh, we care about one another. Yeah. That's that the connections between people are the things that matter most. If 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 you if one were to ask somebody who's being wheeled into uh, transplant surgery, you know, heart or liver transplant surgery, or or someone who's facing chemotherapy for the third or fourth time, um, what matters most? I, trust me, the answers will always include the names of people they love. You know, the, what's filling our, our Palm Pilots or our iPhone calendars starts to drop away really fast w- when someone we love is seriously ill. But, you know, there's something else going on here that, um, <clears throat> again, in this extreme normal, normal moment, the real meaning of those words and phrases and actions, forgiveness and love and gratitude – they they take on more complexity, right? And you know, as a way, in a way, you say it's you know those are the words that come out of your mouth, but they mean something different. Mm. I, I love this quote that you have of Paul Tillich. Um, so you know, forgiveness, right? Forgiveness, of course, it's really difficult. But on the other hand, it's an easy word. Forgive and forget, right? We ha- we also have really superficial associations with it. But here's this Tillich quote that gets at the complexity of this when it happens, as you see it, when people are dying well. You know, you say, forgiving presupposes remembering, and it creates a forgetting, not in the natural way we forget yesterday's weather, but in the way of the great in spite of that says, I forget, although I remember. Without Mm. this kind of forgetting, no human relationship can endure healthy. That's complicated, uh, forgiving. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> yes. Isn't that incredible? You know, Lily Tomlin, uh, another philosopher in our time, <laughs> said <laughs> that, <laughs> that forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. Mm. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's, she's nailed it. I mean, mm-hmm. it involves accepting that the past cannot be changed while recognizing that it need not control our future. Yeah. Really and truly, you know, it's, I think there's great wisdom in, um, in life and in, um, oh, certainly in being a clinician, this notion that um, the choice is between um, protecting ourselves, which is, you know, out of fear, or keeping our hearts open. Yeah. Fear of being hurt, the fear of being used up, the fear of being of failing, of, of being inadequate, of fear of dying. Um, all of those r- rational, by the way, fears. Some of them, some of that reflexive recoiling or protectiveness is, is really uh, truly reflexive, embedded within us. Yes. But we have a choice to keep our hearts open. And it's so interesting that in so doing, often what we do... Um, is so much more rich and and effective, uh, and and promoting of you know growth for for all of us. So you're saying we need to seize 
death as a part of life, as an opportunity for some of this incredible work to happen. But let's talk about, and I think you just started this direction, why that's so hard, why we resist this. Um, we, we are people who beat the odds, right? We fight to the end. When we talk about um, serious <laughs> illness, we talk about aggressive management. Um, in a right. way, those are words that, that mirror the, the fear that you, that you, just, that you just described. Uh. So, so I, think it's, I think it's complex, and, and I don't think we should blame ourselves or really anyone for this uh, predicament. Mm-hmm. We simply live in utterly unprecedented times. You know, everybody uh, who thinks about this or writes about this says, well, it, it was different in, in previous times and death was natural and people yeah. died at home and they died with their loved ones around them. And, and women that... died in childbirth. I mean, we forget right. that. I mean, so many right. more mundane things coming down people with a cold or having babies. Yeah. Right. I mean, serious infections, uh, um, a broken bone where a piece of bone stuck through the skin, you know, you know a yeah. compound fracture. These days, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. Uh, easy for me to say, but, you yeah. know, we, we fix these things yeah. and people go on to live. Not so much in previous times. So we live in unprecedented times and we have um, the ability to, to save and extend life. And that's a remarkable, wonderful, good thing. Life is precious. And, and we're all going to be dead a long time. <laughs> you know, there's no reason to rush it. Right. So, you know, life is precious. And people who are seriously ill, by and large, don't want to be dead. Yeah. And their loved ones don't want them to die. And we have this huge, wonderful set of tools and scientific advances and technology to keep people alive. I think we need to use and celebrate all of that. We also, however, need to hold in our own consciousness and certainly in our culture's consciousness that we have yet to make even one person immortal. Right. And, and so we have a this – is a, this is a cultural – new cultural challenge for unprecedented times. We have to balance these two. Yeah. We have to celebrate life and, and extend life but also somehow factor in what it means these days to, to frankly die well. Uh, and how can we support even our families in this experience? Because, you know, one person gets a diagnosis and a family gets an illness. Yeah. How do we do this well? And so something else that I became aware of it, during a pretty formative period, not that long, but where I worked actually as a chaplain on a, 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 um, a floor for Alzheimer's patients at a home and hospital for the elderly, which was really an amazing transformative thing for me. But one thing experienced there is uh, the will to live as this mysterious, fierce, right, this inborn thing in us. I mean, I saw people who had lost everything. But, you know, it's almost like the will to live, which was almost like a life force of its own, Uh, so I mean, it is, that, it is inherent. It, I mean, right. it's, it's embedded within our genome, and so that colludes with with the more and more we're able to do with medicine. And I mean, isn't there something? There's something beautiful and just incredible about it, even when you see that it stops making sense in all it, its fierceness. It, no question, and 
and this is part of the um, embedded inherent uh, challenges the the complexity of the gifts of being human. Yeah. No other species that we know of can 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 contemplate uh, um, the end of life, their their own death. They can they they can react to it um, reflexively, hormonally, neurochemically, but but to contemplate uh, mortality, that's that's both a gift and a curse that we've been given. I I think uniquely. So I think. You know, the question then becomes, and the other thing that that we all know these days is we know people who have beat the odds, right? We know the people who where cancer had spread throughout their body and they took the aggressive treatment and they lived and we're glad they lived and they raised their children, right? So Absolutely. how do you talk to people and how do you discern, you know, where do you start to recognize that line when this happens to you or to people you love? Are there ground rules for how do you start to say the right thing, the, the loving thing, the, the thing that is going to be about my life completion more than, more than living another week or a month at this point is to, is to transition to this other way of thinking about dying? Mm. Mm, How did, where's the discernment there? What, what guidance mm. can you give? Oh, there's so much to say in, in response to that very, yeah. very, very rich and perceptive question. Um, let me start by, by saying that one way to approach this question that will confront us all is to um, keep your bags as packed as they can be. <laughs> What do you um, mean by that? Well, you know, we just talked about uh, the four things in relationship to knowing that one's life is coming to an end, saying, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, I love you. Um, you don't have to say goodbye to say those four things. You don't, you don't have to be dying for those four things to, to matter. Uh, you just have to be mortal. Mm-hmm. You know, if you love someone, even if you're not mortal, if you love someone who's mortal – <laughs> then you're already at risk of some at some point losing the opportunity of saying those things. So this is a really good day mm-hmm. to say those things, you know, as if you had just had a near-fatal car accident or, or had just been told that, that you have six months to live. Why not? And, and I could go further. Having, you know, a, a will that, that uh, uh, dispenses with your you know, worldly possessions in your estate the way you'd want to and having an advanced directive that says who you'd want to speak for you if you couldn't speak for yourself. All of that stuff is really just good, uh, wise guidance for living. <laughs> yeah. but, but when somebody has an advanced illness and, and the, the treatment options are becoming uh, more difficult, less obvious, uh, I think it's important to remember a few things. Uh, the first is that the, there often isn't any perfect decision mm-hmm. and that ultimately if you really go through this in a, in a fashion that really wrestles with the – you know, as informed a decision as possible, wrestling with um, uh, there will always be a little uncertainty. You'll never know in some – and I'm thinking of things like late treatments for uh, advanced cancer that has spread throughout somebody's body. Um, um, you know, the late treatments may help you live longer, but in fact, they might cause complication that, that claims your life sooner. Right. And there's going to be uncertainty 
in any decision you make, the way I help people and, and in, in our discipline, my colleagues in hospice and palliative medicine uh, work with something called shared decision making. Mm-hmm. And that paradigm uh, and process uh, looks at um, the potential benefits of various treatments uh, as well as the potential um, risks or unknown burdens and the known burdens of treatment. And kind of often with my hands in the air, almost as the pans of a balance beam, we'll sort of look at um, what the, what the hoped-for benefits are, the known burdens, and the risks. Mm-hmm. And then we look at people's values, their personal values, which are, of course, often informed by their culture, ethnicity, you know, their, their values and their preferences, and try to map that to achievable healthcare outcomes. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah? I haven't moved. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll find out. Hold on. She, she's out of the room, but give me a moment, Zach. That's okay. Okay. No, no. Okay. Okay. Even without all those fancy equalizers. Here she is. Hi. Do you want me to do you want me to do a test of some sort? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, maresy dotes and dozy dotes and little lambs eat ivy. A kid'll eat ivy too, uh, wouldn't you? You know it's possible. It's it is possible. Okay. Yes, it does. Yeah. All righty. No, I, um, nothing seems to have changed, so. Oh. Okay, maybe I was too close by chance. Okay. Um, no, I mean, everything seems exactly how it was when I left. Um, is there anything you want me to try? Her or me? Okay, I'm talking. I'm too close to the mic. How's that sound? Okay, here I am. And one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm very close to the mic at the moment. Is that it? 
Hmm. Okay. Um, well, unfortunately, our person, our technical person's out today, um, so I don't exactly know a lot about the system, but I can try disconnecting and reconnecting, turning things off. Do you have anything in particular you want me to try? Okay. 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 Okay, sounds good. I've been called weird before, but. Hi there, can you hear us? Hello. Okay, any better? Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three, four, five, six. Mm. Anything? Sweet Loretta Modern thought she was a woman, but she was... Hmm? Anything? I'm not Sorry, are you talking to us? Hi. Yeah, we're here. No. no. Hold on. Let's try something else here. Is it different now? Oh. It's gone. Hmm. Well, I, I had uh, uh, my laptop was not on, but on the desk, and and the cord, the the curly cord from the um, headset was just lying on it. I just isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Huh? Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, things were off, but but the latter wasn't. Now they are. Okay. Good. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Krista. Hi. 
All right. Sorry about that. The only sure thing about technology is that it will find always creative and unusual ways to create difficulty. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's always something new. No, no. Don't be sorry. It's uh, okay. Are we? Let me let me start. Okay, or can we keep going? Okay. I want to do this. Um, we were talking about how people make that decision to kind of cross that border between fighting and embracing death as a moment of life with value. And I wonder, I mean, you tell so many stories in your books. I, I wonder if there is a story that comes to you now, something that is fresh in your mind about that kind of illustrates, you know, how that line gets crossed and, and why. I recently um, helped um, counsel a, um, a couple whose um, four-year-old daughter is... Um, terminally ill but she's doing fine <laughs> she's she's happy she's growing she's playing she um, simply has a uh, uh, a cancer a, a blood disorder that um, is not going to get fixed mm-hmm. uh, and how you how as a parent you um, even acknowledge that your beautiful little girl is dying is is you know crazy making it, it the the mind almost whites out in 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 sheer um, terror and unacceptability of this. But the fact is that it's it's really uh, not a question of whether she's going to die. She is going to die. To a certain extent, it's a it's a matter of um, when, because mm-hmm. there are ways of keeping her alive through medical technology. But more profoundly, it's a matter of how. How is this going to happen? How can this most unacceptable of things happen, so that their dear child is is comfortable, um, isn't suffering? Uh, and is frankly uh, pampered, honored, celebrated um, during this the the last parts of her life, the last you know days, huh. hours, minutes of her life. It's the hardest thing in the world, mm-hmm. um, and and I think I don't counsel people uh, on that. I, I think in a sense, illness is the best counselor for that in that regard. You know. I don't. I don't want to apologize for mortality <laughs> any more than I would try to apologize for gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's clear that um, at some point in time, mor- mortality, like gravity, will have its way with us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, and 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 so I'm trying to make the very, you know, this very horrible thing, this this un- most unwanted of all things, um, happen in, in a way that is. Uh, uh, as good as it can be, I guess is it, it seems disrespectful to even say it, but uh, as well as it can happen within this family's values, 
and, um, and their own preferences, and, and how we can use medical technology to meet um, uh, their goals in, in this, you know, right. most difficult, poignant time. It's important to acknowledge that dying isn't medical. Right. It's personal. Right. Right? And w- it's so easy to lose that. When somebody is seriously ill, for the very best reasons, we, we and I did this in the emergency department all the time, we, we, we tacitly say to people, put your life on hold. You know, mm-hmm. we got important work to do here. You're having mm-hmm. a heart attack. Right. We, we need to get you, you know, uh, get you uh, uh, some TPA to cl- bust this clot. And we need to do an angiogram and stent that artery or whatever it is. And, and you know, you'll get back to, yeah, you're not going to go to Chicago for the business trip, but you're, you'll do okay. We got work to do. When somebody is at the end of a serious, you know, uh, life-limiting illness, um, they can't put their lives on hold. This is their life. And while medicine has a lot to offer, yeah. uh, none of us should be sort of seduced into thinking that this is a medical experience. It, it is a personal experience that has serious medical needs. That's what I've, I try to help this family kind of sort through and sort out. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it's not embracing it. It's a, it's not a – it doesn't feel like a, um, um, you know, light and and kind of a right, right. new agey experience. It, it's the most gritty, difficult, unwanted uh, experience and, and yet and yet so profoundly personal and, and human. Mm. Yeah, I know. I hear it too. <clears throat> Yeah. Gee whiz, really. Yeah, I actually heard it that it was right near the end of your answer there. It suddenly just completely changed. Um I, you know, I didn't hear any of it. But yeah, and I wasn't damn. I wasn't hearing it before because I think I was just so immersed in what you're saying, but this time I heard it. Wow. Yeah. I guess um yeah, do we need to have part oh, two? I'm so, I know so disappointed. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah, we just, you know, we want to get, we want this to be beautiful. and uh, You want me to try a different <laughs> We uh, do microphone? aim for perfection in, in public radio, so. <laughs> yeah, good. It shows. <laughs> we, want, we want to create something that will be immortal <laughs> um, digitally. Well, I don't know what to say. Um, uh, she's not even here again. I can go get yeah, her. Yeah, see, this is, but, you know, Ira, this is the problem where uh, it, it's, I'm, uh, she's not there, but, you know, they, that the right. technical person is not there today is just terrible, yeah, because that's really right. that's what Zach needs. He needs a colleague at right. the other end, right? Because there's clearly something going on that's correctable, but I don't think the person who knows how to correct it is there. No, sh- no. What we have, what we have, we have, uh, we we would not need to start over again. So I mean, I think this started at an identifiable point. And I think we could probably, if we can be sure about the space, if we could do half an hour, um, I know where we're going to go with this now, which is a pain. But I actually know that we that you and I can do that. Yeah, I, I sure. wouldn't I wouldn't feel confident with every with every interview, but um, we can't. We will be able to settle back into this place we're in now. Um, um, mm-hmm. Okay. Do you you know I have the time to try again now, but I'm also fine with. You I know. need. What you're going to be in Boston. 
Me? Okay. Are you talking to me? Yeah. Oh. I think what I need to do is hand this over to the technical people, and I'm, I'm sensing that Zach wants to make a call that we just can't continue with this studio today, which okay. I'm really sorry about this, but I, I think you me want too. as well as I do to, um, to make this right, and we have time. Uh, so let me hand you over to producers and um, experts. <laughs> and so this is just, uh, you know... Until we speak again. Yes, thanks. And thanks again <laughs> for doing wonderful. this. It's a great conversation. Oh, it is a great conversation. <laughs> and we will have we'll have a great conversation to finish it up, too. All right. Okay, I'm confident Krista, of that. Again. Thank you. All right. Zach, I'm really sorry. I wish there was something I could do. Gee. There's, a, there's another, you know, a couple of things. I can do this from Missoula, Montana next Monday or Tuesday. They have a, there's a NPR affiliate out there, KUFM. Um, we can do it from there easily. Boston. Um, well, I'm headed to Boston tonight, but I'm just going to Logan Airport. M- Missoula's really easy. I have two days off for, for doing, you know, um, creative stuff and studying. I'm studying for some boards <laughs> I have to take. Um, but that, it's a good studio. I've done bunches of interviews from there. And I have I, – I really don't think I have anything scheduled either Monday or Tuesday. They were – they're specifically sort of vacation days for me in Missoula. Um, but I'm studying and, you know, it's easy to break away and do this. So I could be very flexible with their schedule. Bye, guys. Sounds like I lost you. <laughs> nice, nice talking with you. During this interview, we experienced some technical difficulties and had to reschedule another recording session with Ira Bayak. We picked up with him on March 5, 2012. He was in the studios this time of Montana Public Radio in Missoula, Montana. Hi there. Hi, can you hear me? No. Hello? Hello, Krista? Yes, did you hear me? Uh, I do now. Oh, I good. did it before. Good. I, I've been trying to reach you. <laughs> good. Okay, we're back. That's great. Um, good. How are you feeling? How's your cold? I, I'm better. I'm better. I I just think this is just something that it is taking time to work through my system. And, of course, that's not allowed. <laughs> yes. I, I did not approve <laughs> a virus that would take 10 days to get better, but it's okay. Yeah. I'm going to live. <laughs> um, I... Uh, I'm so glad we, that we can that we can do this. I I I think I know where we want to go. Um, I did want to tell you a story that I kept thinking about after we spoke. Um, you talked about having your bags packed and telling yes. people you love them and that you forgive them along the way. I, <laughs> I was thinking about. I I think my daughter is really very kind of emotionally and spiritually intelligent which i uh, intelligent i don't really take credit for cuz she's quite different from me but um mm. she somewhere somewhere heard not from me in the last couple of years she's 18 that you should always they should tell people you love them when you say goodbye mm. and uh and then recently we had this experience where she and her brother were fighting and and the three of us just got into this you know everybody was having a bad day and then he and I were heading out, and she said, uh, 
if you crash the car and die, know that I love you. No, <laughs> but if you that's don't, so cool. she said, but if you don't, I'm still mad at you. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you told me your philosophy, I That's thought, okay, so well, she's on to something there. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. That's all I have to say. Exactly. Uh, so I do, I think because of y- you're who you are and <laughs> and we had such a good beginning that we can kind of plunge back in here. And so Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay. I, I was too. I was really sorry to have I to know, stop because I I, it felt it, we, <laughs> it felt like we were getting so, some <laughs> And so I so I think where I want to start um um to plunge back in is uh again, you you tell there's so many stories that you write about and that you tell. And um I want you we you had just you had just told a story about this about two parents and their their four-year-old daughter who's dying. And I I, I want to ask kind of an, a a different a question from the same from a slightly different angle. So, you know, this term dying well um as you this term dying well mm. as you know is doesn't really sit easily in mm. 21st century vocabularies or imaginations for, for many reasons. So, so I wonder, again, if you would tell me a story, you know, who comes to mind right now, just today as we're talking, to give mm. me a picture mm. of someone who has died well, what that looks like, what are the contours of that? On, on the way over to the studio, I was actually thinking about uh, a woman um, I call Alice. It's a pseudonym, but mm-hmm. she was very real, a 47-year-old uh, uh, woman with, um, with an advanced cancer uh, um, who was admitted to the hospital. She knew she was facing the end of life, but you know, uh, expected that she had several months to live. And, and suddenly her uh, right leg became uh, blue and and cold and painful, and she came to the hospital and ended up having a procedure to take a clot out of uh, of her, her leg. I visited her on a Sunday, uh, making rounds. I was alone, um, uh, making rounds for our team in in, in the hospital. And um, and as I came into the room, uh, I knew her from before. As I came into the room. Uh, we talked about you know her pain and her bowels and the usual. St- physiologic stuff we needed to do. And then I noticed this book of poems at her bedside and, and, uh, uh, and we, it was, there was roomy poems and we <laughs> read a couple together. Uh, and then I just – just on a whim, I, I uh, shared one of my favorite poems uh, from memory with her. Um, uh, I'll, I'll actually re- yeah. uh, read it. Yeah, please. Uh, or recite it really. Um, you do not need to leave your room. Remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen. Simply wait. Do not even wait. Be quiet, still, and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. And I asked Alice if she had any idea who, who the poet was. And she went through, you know, she figured it wasn't roomy because I would have told her that. And, <laughs> you know, she, she, she went through Rilke and a few others. And, 
And I said, no, it's actually Franz Kafka. Hmm. And here we had this great conversation because here Kafka, you know, is the quintessential existentialist who portrays the universe as cold and impersonal. And yet here was this remarkably spiritual Hmm. poem. Hmm. And we ended up talking about fractiles and and, uh, chaos theory and randomness and – and, and Alice began to talk about feeling whole and, and even in the face of, of loss. Uh, as, we were v- as we were visiting and, and in the midst of this reverie, in walks uh, her husband, Tony. Uh, and they had actually um, fallen in love uh, uh, after her diagnosis or, or, oh, or really came together after her diagnosis and had been together for several years, and it was this remarkable love story. As I left her room that morning, I, I have this image of her and Tony sort of beaming into each other's eyes. And, 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 and for me, that is this notion of wellness, that they have – there's two mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. were going on. Dying and being well at the same time. Actually, yes. exactly. Mm-hmm. Becoming, in a sense, more well during this process. Right. And, and also there was this sense, and I tell this story sometimes about uh, – because it epitomizes to me the, the sense of um, healthy defiance, I, I would say almost, uh, that, that they evinced um, this notion that their love for one another uh, in the face of mortality was a statement that love is stronger than death. Hmm. You know, even death can't take this from us. So it's a very – that for me is, is this is, – is an example, one of many, frankly, of almost the fulfillment of the human condition in the face of death. Quite, quite a remarkable uh, example from my own personal and professional uh, life. But it's a different form of defiance than the defiance we talked about earlier that we're all very familiar with, the defiance that, that, that you will – you and that medicine will take us to the ultimate lengths to beat the odds, right? To 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 beat the illness to the very end. It's it's a diff. It's a completely different. It's defiance, but it's yes. has a completely different. I don't different think emphasis. they're mutually exclusive. Okay, I, I, I really maybe right. I want to so have it all, but then we boomers that. do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. I, I, I want to defy death as long as it makes sense to do so. I I, I think. Medicine is awesome. I mean it's mm-hmm. just phenomenal what we can do these days and, and we should do it when we can. Mm-hmm. But, but that – but doing it as well as we can, really and truly committing to the best possible care for each person um, must not exclude the reality of death. Mm-hmm. That, that has to be brought into balance. We, we have and. to struggle with it all. It is both and. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So, so absolutely, I want to make the best of disease treatments and living as long and as well as possible. But I also want to leave this life with nothing left undone, having having enjoyed, you know, enriched, loved, um, honored, and celebrated all of life. That that mm-hmm. I think is is our our birthright too. And this is all circling also back to. Your idea that 
that that death is a developmental landmark, that even it's happening mm. at the end of life. And I, I did want to ask you about a few of the notions that, you know, some of the language and the ideas that, that, that come up for you. Um, and one of them is, is the idea of personhood. Um, a mm. new, uh, you use language like a sense of a new self beyond personal loss, um, of, of, of a quality of this, this developmental stage as experiencing love of others, but also love of self. So, so tell me how what personhood means for you, how you think differently about that notion because of this work you do as a doctor and as being with people at the end of life. Per- personhood is more than w- what we do. You know, I think we, so many of us grow up as human doings rather than human beings. Mm-hmm. We're so identified with, with uh, what we can accomplish and our self-worth, by the way, is, is so identified with what we can accomplish and who we are and what the, our roles are um, uh, in, our, in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in our neighborhoods and communities and workplaces. Um, in doing the work that I do, uh, I have the privilege really of being with people, journeying uh, along their way uh, as they, in, they live with um, serious illness and go through arduous treatments. And, and all of those roles and their doings uh, often need to be uh, need to adapt to the new reality of their of their health situation their their limitations. Some people are devastated by that. I, I mean, maybe everybody is devastated by that, or nearly everybody. Initially, um, it's really a hit to who we think we are. Mm-hmm. Um, our usual strategies don't work any anymore when when illness causes symptoms or limits our ability to climb stairs or to drive or to go to work or you know leaves us no energy on and on yet many people are able to not just adapt that sort of diminishes it but to grow through the experience to to find a, a new sense of self and a new sense of integration mm. um, that um, uh, provides uh, a a uh, sense of wellness. Uh, so personhood changes in a sense. You know, we're more than our bodies and our minds. We're, we're our past. We're our family, a family we grew up in, a family we live with now. We uh, we have a, a, a secret life, <laughs> which which may be things we, we don't want to share because they'd be somehow misunderstood or embarrassing. Some of it's shameful stuff that that memories that every one of us carries but sometimes it's just parts of our previous life that no one you know friends when we were uh, a school age or preschoolers even that no one in our current life would relate to Um, we have so much political beliefs and aversions all of that is our personhood it changes as people journey through illness and and i think the way people like myself who want to support and counsel people in this work of life completion, frankly, help um, ill people and their families achieve a sense of completion in various sort of spheres of of their personhood um, so that they can release them uh, and let them go rather than having illness rip parts of uh, themselves from the person and family. Hmm. You have also said that one thing mortality teaches is that human life is inherently spiritual, whether or not mm. a person has a religion. 
Tell me about that. Well, I, th- I think the confrontation with death lays bare the, the spiritual core of the human condition. I mean, death acts as like a hot wind to really strip away uh, any pretense a person has, any sense of self, and, and, and really exposes our, our, uh, our personal essence, our elemental core. Hmm. Um, what I call spiritual is our innate response to um, the at once awe-inspiring and terrifying fact of human life, our experience of life in this universe. Um, you know, in many ways, we're, we're just all uh, hurtling through deep space on this tiny rock called Earth. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, really think about it, Ex- you know, protected from the frigid galactic void of, of the Milky Way, but by a blanket of air, mm. you know, held on the surface by gravity, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> mm. and, and here we are. Um, and, and really, uh, um, for me, that, that very image that I, I, I have um, helps me come to the confrontation uh, or other people's confrontation and the clinical encounter, if you will, with a person, seeing the other person as just another being. And here we are. Um, that, um, for human beings, um, is really uh, a, a, a confrontation with the spiritual. Mm. It calls into question, you know, what is the meaning of this life? And, and often draws us to a sense of some connection to something larger than ourselves which will endure. Mm-hmm. I, I suddenly was thinking as you, as you described that, that incredible image of us as these beings in time and space. Uh, that obviously I haven't gone through the experience of dying, but again and again in a lifetime, you hit these moments uh, where you realize you're completely unprepared, and it's like you're walking on a frontier. I mean, I think the first few days of having a new baby home with you. Yes. It's like, yes. somebody let me bring this thing home. Yes. <laughs> right? And every minute is an adventure, and Absolutely. you are inventing... <laughs> It, what to do, and and it is. It's about it's about life. But uh, I mean, I think there are moments in every relationship that are like that, and and you can crash or you can learn something completely startlingly new. And I guess you're you're talking about death being one of those moments, one of those times too. I I think you're absolutely correct. It's exactly what we what we were talking about. Um, you know, the doors of perception are thrown open uh, at times of birth and at times of death. Mm-hmm. I, for me, that's the sacred. The, the sacred isn't a concept. It's not a philosophy. It's this visceral experience of rightness in the moment, this unbelievable sense of privilege, um, this, this m- s- sitting with somebody at their bedside s- you know, standing as a, a, a in in back of a room with a, with a family surrounding someone who they love who's dying. Um, at the moment, there is this rightness, this sense of resolution of all contradiction hmm. that I think we human beings somehow label the sacred. 
you know, it's, it's this experience of being infinitesimal and yet being infinite, utterly vulnerable and yet unshakably confident. Yes, that's the thing. The resolution comes at that moment of complete vulnerability. That's what's so shocking about it. It's unbelievable. You know, we're utterly insignificant and yet and yet infinitely meaningful <laughs> right then. Yeah. It's just such a gift. All right. And and that is that's part of what I mean by by saying that that really this confrontation with death in so many ways re- really uh, exposes the, the spiritual essence, the elemental core of, of what it means to be human. Hmm. I'm I'm also um, I mean that I think that's going to be that's so I'm that's so helpful and useful to to speak of spirituality in that way and to also say that this is not an exclusive experience of of the religious. I have also been struck across the years about how physicians, I think, have a definition of religion that they see religion operating. So, you know, something that drives me crazy in um, from my my standpoint of what I do is how we tend to talk about religion in public life and certainly in political life as a matter of what people believe. And I experience physicians to experience the fullness of religion it's, that sometimes I think a I've noticed that doctors' working definitions of religion has everything to do with being about networks of friendship and practical care. I mean, that that their definition of religion, as it works, (laughs) is all about other people. Yes. Is that that true for you? I I mean, how has your definition of religion, let's just ask it, how has your definition of religion evolved through this life you have? Uh, Well, I, I make a distinction between religion and faith communities. Okay. Um, and I, th- I think religion is, you know, that set of, uh, of beliefs of, you know, eschatology and origin myths and, and, and you know, uh, uh, traditions and rituals that uh, partly that help people throughout the ages across generations deal with the, the profound uh, uh, human uh, crises, including birth, by the way, and death. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, faith communities are this, you know, something, uh, the sense of connection. I, I think community is a verb, Krista. Hmm. You know, it has hmm. the substance of a noun, but it's all hmm. about mutuality and belonging and and, and mutual responsibilities and um, acts and of kindness. Acts of kindness, exactly. Generosity. Uh, and it's absolutely true that that uh, people who have a faith community um, have a clear advantage when when they f- they're facing you know serious illness and their families are are dealing with with their care uh, needs and um, this sense of connection is remarkable and it really incredibly lightens uh, the load of of a, of a uh, ill person and family. Hmm. It's wonderful. It, by the way, is one of the things I believe that faith communities ought to be doing to energize and, and reinvigorate them, themselves as communities. This is the work of um, religious communities or faith communities. It is part of what we do. We care for one another. We say to, you know, the force majeure of mortality, we matter to one another. Hmm. This matters. 
and, and so, you know, while faith communities so often, I talk to um, uh, ministers and rabbis and leaders of faith communities who, who worry where they're going to get the resources to really um, um, resource, um, you know, um, caring committees or, you know, caring circles that, that develop within faith communities. I, I almost think the exact opposite is the case. Hmm. What do you mean? This is, this is the work that draws people to oh. faith communities. Right. The, the, the caring as a verb. Do this more you know, and the resources the will come. Is that what you – Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. This isn't, this isn't about needing a lot of money. Um, this is about, you know, people of faith coming together to demonstrate and, and act on uh, their core values and what really matters most. So recently I was listening to a, the BBC – actually, as I was preparing to interview you, uh, I, I listened to a lot of BBC medical and science shows. And <laughs> there was a report about apparently there's a worm, an inchworm, I think, that is apparently immortal – that it regenerates across. Of course, it can't prove this because nobody has known the same inchworm for eternity. Uh-huh. But um, <laughs> they think that it regenerates both at the head and the tail. And and this got me thinking about a larger question in terms of what you're doing. As you say, you're not you're not pushing against scientific advance. You are a champion of scientific advance. You're in there with it with medicine, Celebrating getting better it. and you better. You bet. Yeah. You bet. But then this both and that you're championing that there also has to be. Space, almost a sacred space in there for dying well when that's what's happening. Um, I wonder if you feel like like the struggle, you know, it may even get more intense because one thing we know about science and medicine is that they will keep learning things. Right. You know, is there is there a downside of success in that medicine gets better to better, better and better, technology advances, and will that continue to put pressure against this work of learning to die well. Do you think about this? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. It's time for us to struggle and wrestle and grow the rest of the way up as a culture. These are unprecedented times, and the, and the advances will keep on coming. You can – I guarantee it. Um, I, you know, it's unlikely we're going to make anyone immortal Right. Um, and and you but know we what? will study if, that inchworm, <laughs> right? And, but yeah. even if we yeah. did, I mean, you know, people tell me about their grandfather who, who, you know, uh, they say he's like a cat with nine lives. Yeah. You know, doc, yeah. you never know. Well, that may be the case, but have you ever met one of those cats with nine lives? They they tend to be bedraggled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. They're limping. They've got patches of fur missing. They got an right. ear that's all down. You know, it's not as if we escape all the consequences of of uh, living with the with frankly the gift of what chronic illness is, as compared to having died earlier. Right. So these issues will continue to get more complicated and the questions will get ever more uh, challenging. And, and frankly, we have to, as a community, as a society and culture, uh, have ongoing conversations involving medicine and nursing and social work, but also the clergy and theo- theologians, theo- theologians rather, and, um, and philosophers – we have to have this ongoing conversation um, stipulating that, frankly, we're all pro-life. I mean, you know, you know sm- small case P, <laughs> pro-life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
we're all pro-dignity, frankly. This is not this, – there's not really a lot of cultural conflict when you get down to it. But, but we're so afraid to talk about these things that we haven't developed kind of a, a more mature, um, fitting um, uh, concept of, of what it means to die well today in, in the world of antibiotics and miracle surgeries and, and the Magellan robotics, you know, uh, operator and, and genomics and proteinomics and antivirals and all of that. Yeah. Well, okay, how do we die well now? So if I ask you, how has that conversation become more nuanced, the conversation you might have with your doctor or that you would have with your wife or your children? I mean, mm. what? I, I really think it has to do with looking at what a person's current quality of life is. What is really achievable in, through medical treatment, the next round of chemotherapy or the, or the next cardiac device, you know, whether it's a, an LVAD or a biventricular pacemaker or, an, in, you know, an implanted cardiac defibrillator, what, what it has to offer and whether it can uh, really improve my current quality of life. And frankly, most treatments for late-stage disease can't. They can only get you back to where you were, um, um, you know, uh, before the latest, you know, complication, the latest infection or blood clot or whatever. Um, and then what are the burdens of, of that treatment? What, what could it do to deteriorate my current quality of life? And, and what are the risks beyond the known burdens? What might happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and that balance, I, I usually have these conversations somehow, again, with my, with my palms upward, sort of mimicking a, uh, uh, the pans of, a, of, a, of an old balance beam. Hmm. How does that shake out? Sometimes if suffering is really white hot and severe, um, then any risk is worth it, even if I were to die during the surgery. I, I tell the story of a woman named Holly Block who was in such white hot pain that uh, – and she was offered a, a, um, a neurosurgical uh, procedure to cut uh, nerves in her spinal cord to stop the pain. High risk, she might not ever feel her legs again. She might not ever be able to walk again um, or, or move her legs. But she was in such white-hot pain that it was worth the risk. Right. Um, and then, frankly, for her, it turned out beautifully. And, and the next day I saw her, I said, you know, uh, I said, Holly, how are you doing? And she looked at me and said, you know, I feel safe at last. Hmm. For other people who are doing okay – uh, a high-risk surgery or, or another round of, you know, the fourth round of chemotherapy might pose such a risk to their current quality of life that it, it's not worth it. And so they'll sort of, you know, hold the cards that they've currently been dealt and, and invest in quality rather than absolute quantity of life. So I think what this is getting at, though, is also the difficulty. It's not like you can come up with a set of guidelines because every – Death and every illness, like every life, and mm. every every example of good health, is distinct, right? So, so I mean, it doesn't sound like you could sit down with your children and say, you know, here are the criteria, right? No, but you because it's too 
specific. It's too particular. The, the medical aspects will be too particular. Right. What you can do is have a discussion about what you value. Where in that basic um, um, process you would value quality rather than quantity Mm -hmm. and trust them. It's really covenantal. You have to trust those that you love to work with your physicians to really make the best decision. Uh, What I can define is is a process. Nowadays, we call it uh, shared decision-making that can be applied so that we do honor the highly personal and particular values and preferences of every person and family. Mm -hmm. That much we can do. And that's what our field in in palliative medicine does. I mean, that's our our bread and butter, frankly. The the goals of care conversation is uh, our our major intervention, if you will. Um, And and that, that we've gotten down to a relative science. And that's out there. Yeah. There's an amazing yep. quote um, in some one of the pieces, one of your books, I think, um, from Anthony Perkins uh, before his death. Or yeah, I, I have learned more about love, selflessness, and human understanding from the people I have met in this great adventure in the world of AIDS than I ever did in the cutthroat, competitive world in which I spent my life. I mean, that's that beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's a very dramatic. Uh, it just dramatically speaks to this idea that you present that this time of life too can be its own unique adventure. Right. I mean, here he was, you know, well known, accomplished, wealthy, successful in so many ways, and yet to say he he learned more living with and dying from this dreaded disease. That, he chose those words carefully, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's that's really uh, quite remarkable, and it does, in fact, um, uh, I think, point us back to to um, our assumptions about this time of life we call dying. It, it isn't easy. I don't want to romanticize it. It's it's no fun. Nobody looks forward to it. Yeah. Um, it's good to to be thinking about life and and living as long as well as possible. But we shouldn't assume that it's only about suffering and its avoidance or its suppression. That in addition to, concurrent with the unwanted, difficult, physical and emotional, social strains that illness and dying uh, impose, there is also um, experiences, interactions, opportunities that are of profound value for, for individuals and all who love them. So if I ask you the question this way, I mean, how do you live differently? How do you think about life differently? How do you live differently because you work with dying? <sighs> I, you know, I have constant reminders through my work day that this moment matters, that this is a, a precious – today is, is a precious day. Um, I, I, I often quip to people. They say, hi, Ira, how you doing? And I, I'll say, never better. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's, not that, it's not only flippant. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it also is a reminder to myself that it's all led up to this day, this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's not true when I say it, but it ought to be, darn it. Um, <laughs> so, so, so it calls me back to being mindful in this moment. Um, and, and the, you know, 
the people I'm really privileged to help care for uh, are um, are being reminded that this day matters because we can't uh, be sure we're never promised the next. And that's um, true. That's true every day of our lives, <laughs> right? It is. But you are with people where that has suddenly come home, where it's suddenly something you must contemplate. Yeah. yeah. I think besides that, frankly, I, I, I've learned to apologize better. <laughs> yeah. More, um, more, more quickly than I might have, mm. um, with less lag, um, more thoroughly. Mm. Um, I still, I still misspeak. I still snap sometimes. I've, you know, drank too much coffee, had too little sleep. I'm too, you know, too goal oriented. And, uh, and, and yet, um, I really want my relationships with other people to be um, clean and complete. Not complete like they're over, but complete like a circle is complete, like, you know, when it's unbroken. Um, I, I really want to um, know that – I want them to know that I, I, I really am sorry when, when I've screwed up. Um, and I really do appreciate uh, who they are in my life. Um, this is really – for me, that that's that's what matters most. So, mm-hmm. so this work also reminds me to to do that more often, to tell people I love them more more often and more thoroughly. And this is a related question. I mean, how does this work you do make you think differently about what it means to be human? I mean, can you can you think about how that sense of yours has evolved? over the years with this passion? Well, it calls me back to realizing that um, every moment is sacred if, if I have the uh, presence of mind and, and, and the openness of awareness to recognize it. We said a little while ago that, you know, the, the, the doors to the sacred are thrown open at times of birth and and death, mm-hmm. you know, in in cathedrals, whether it's Notre Dame in Paris or Angkor Wat or, or the natural cathedrals of the Grand Canyon, you're sort of shaken from your from your weekday consciousness, and there it is. Oh, <laughs> I'm aware every morning as I meditate of of the challenge of that. Ah, oh, awesome consciousness. Um, and and um, again, you know, you can't do this work, I think, without um, recognizing that um, life is unbelievable and it's mystery. It's terrifying and awe-inspiring and, and truly, um, tr- truly awesome. Um, my goal is to, is to live as fully as I can in the present and, and enjoy all of it because, you know, we're all going to be dead a long time. Right, right. I, I think that may be your last word, but is there anything else that is – I mean, there's a lot we could have talked about. But <laughs> anything that just you really feel like you want to speak or name right before we finish? Oh, no, o- only that um, I-, I think um, – this work is a is a constant uh, reminder um, 
um, to, to approach every person with the best of mind and heart. Um, that's something that Dame Cicely Saunders said at the, at the very, very earliest dawn of this discipline. Of and, hospice uh, and movement. I, mm. Right. And I rediscover it time and time again. Mm. And what, what is it? I mean, I, it's an important thought. I mean, what, what, what is it specifically about the experience of hospice and dying that, that makes that so, so, so vibrant for you? Well, first, though, all that training and book learning that I've done and my colleagues have shared with me in, in doing all those, all those days and nights at the library and studying and all of that training, the years, yeah. um, turns out to be really useful. <laughs> we bring a certain level of uh, knowledge base and skill set to uh, meet people where they're at, to, to address their physical uh, issues, to integrate the best of disease treatment and, and care for their comfort and quality of life. Um, but ultimately, again, you know, we're just two people um, mm. in, in this in, in this moment of time. A really a really blip, a, not even a blip, a b mm. in the in the history of of the universe. Um, and and what a privilege to 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 bring all that uh, to serve. Ultimately, service is is frankly um, an activity motivated by love. Mm. Um, I, I think the the consummate clinician, which we all strive to be, uh, integrates head and heart um, and is unafraid to bring both intelligence and experience and unabashed tenderness and love uh, to the clinical encounter. Okay. Well, I think this was a fitting ending to the beautiful beginning we had. (laughs) Thanks, Krista. This has been so much fun. Can we do it again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, and we maybe have dinner we do sometime? it all in one piece. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I um, it feels like we were moving for, towards this for a long time, and I know we're going to be able to make a beautiful hour of radio. So thank oh, you. Thanks and, so much uh, for doing thanks this. Thanks for being such a sport yeah. about working with the technology. Quite the contrary. Thank you guys for being uh, patient and tenacious and, uh, and, and uh, with all of this. I really appreciate we it. We had to get it right, so... Great. Thank you so much. And I do hope that our paths will cross in person. One of these I really days. do, too. Yeah. All right. I'm so glad to know right. you're out there doing what you do. Thanks. Thank okay. you very much. I'll, yeah. I'll keep listening. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye for now.